question I want to start with today is the question, where is all the good news? Like that thing I just told you, that's good news. We've, uh, we, we've seen God be incredibly faithful. But um, as you probably know by now, there's not a lot of good news in the world. You just heard Ashley and her team lead us in an incredible song about the victory of God and how good God is and the power of the Spirit of God. And all that's true. But most of us would say, like, I, I don't know that I experience that personally on a day-to-day basis, or even if I do, it sure seems like the world isn't like that. Um, there's a, 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 a way of consuming news that Amanda really likes simply called the Good News Network. It's actually uh, just stories that are uh, fun and uh, have joy in them. And it's kind of, uh, it's certainly not meant to be your uh, entire diet of news, but it is a reminder that God is still doing good things in the world. And so that question, where has all the good news gone? Uh, That's an important question for us to dig into. And today, I want to ask the question, could it be that part of why we don't see good news is because our perspective needs to shift. Could it be that what immediately looks like bad news is actually the love and grace and mercy of God? So I want to ask you to grab your Bibles and open to Exodus chapter 8. Exodus chapter 8. So we're uh, in this series called Becoming or Building the People of God. We're talking about uh, God shaping and forming his people Uh, through both the Exodus narrative, uh, the beginning of Exodus, and then uh, the work of leading his people through to the promised land and how that entire process is intended to be formative to the people of God. Last week, we began a two-part series on the plagues and how the plagues were judgment uh, to the, the idols of Egypt, but also redemption for the people of God. We can think of the plagues immediately just under that second thing, that uh, God used the plagues to deliver the people, and certainly he did that. But he makes it really clear at the beginning of Exodus chapter 7 that part of the work of the plagues is to reveal the power of God, who he is, to the nation of Egypt, that, that Egypt themselves would see him. And so what happens with these plagues is one after another, the Egyptian gods are being judged. And they're being shown to be what they are. And one of the things that I posited to you last week is, could it be that that actually is good news? That the love and mercy of God is exposing to them, for instance, that Heket, the God of fertility, isn't actually where you find fruitfulness, but that God alone can bring fruitfulness to his people. Could it be that the love of God is revealing to Egypt the futility of serving their gods, and directing them to the heart, the beauty of serving the God of Israel. I think not only do I think that's what's happening, but I think between this week and then next week as we look at the the Passover story and some of the implications, uh, we'll see that that is indeed the case. And so um, the question I want you to ask is, what's the good news we're supposed to hear in this text? So I want to read for you uh, the, the third plague, And then we're going to talk through the totality of the plagues. But I want to read for you the third plague so you can hear uh, this narrative. This is starting in Exodus chapter 8, verse 16. And I'm going to read through verse 19. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, 
and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they couldn't. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Would you pray with me? Jesus, as we look at this ancient story told so many times, thousands and millions of times over the centuries, God, would you bring it to life in our hearts? Help us to hear what it is that you desire for us to hear, what not just the first hearers heard, but how Jesus understood uh, the story to be being told and what it means for us today. And so, God, uh, open our hearts, our minds, and our spirits to hear from you. Where my words are uh, less than what you desire, God, may they fall away and become nothing. Where they come from my strength, we know that they have no power. But where they come from your spirit, they're full of power. And so, God, would you speak to our hearts through your word by your spirit and change us. Uh, Show us the hard places. Show us the broken places and bring life to us. And God, in this crazy medium of video preaching, would you help to arrest our attention, draw our attention to the beauty of your story, and remind us of what's true about us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So um, I want to look at three different words. Uh, I promise I'm going to be done with words that are alliterating after this week, at least for a few weeks. Uh, I want to look at the flow of the narrative. I want us to walk all the way through the narrative uh, and see the general flow of it, even though we're not going to be able to deal with every piece individually. So I want us to see the flow of the narrative. I want us to see the finger of God. What did uh, uh, the Pharaoh's magicians mean when they said that? And what does it mean for us today? And then finally, the forward move of the kingdom. We're about to see Israel released from Egypt and move forward. But I believe that this phrase, the finger of God, is to call us forward as well. So what does it look like for us to move forward? So those are our three words, flow, finger, and forward as we step into the word of God. So I'm not going to walk through uh, all of these plagues in a ton of detail. There's a lot there and we could dig apart each one. There's all kinds of fascinating patterns within them, some of which we know and understand and some of which honestly we don't know and don't understand. Um, But what I want you to see is some of the rhythms and the patterns of what's going on. So there's going to be a chart that's going to show up on the screen. So I'm going to just disappear for a minute and you're going to see this chart on the screen. And this chart that's on the screen shows uh, the three cycles of the plagues. So I told you last week that the nine cycle, the nine plagues leading up to the death of the firstborn, they operate in three different cycles. And uh, the way those cycles play out is that they begin with uh, bother and frustration. They move to uh, pain and suffering. And then uh, by the third cycle, they move to real damage, to, uh, to, to deep fear uh, and uh, real lasting consequence. And so they, they have this kind of uh, greater move forward. And what you see, some of which you see on the screen, you see that the beginning of each cycle, for instance, um, the, Moses comes to Pharaoh in the morning. At the end of each cycle, there's no warning for the third plague. So like the one that we just read, the, the gnats, there's no warning for that. It just happens. Um, what we don't see on this chart is the fact that the first uh, set of plagues, those first cycle, they affect 
all of the nation of Egypt, including Israel. But by the time you get to the second cycle, Israel is no longer affected. And so there's this distinction between Israel and Egypt. Uh, you see that Aaron is the vehicle for some of the plagues early on. Uh, Moses is a vehicle for the plagues later, and God himself a vehicle for the plagues in the middle. Some of this we understand, some of it we don't fully understand. But what's happening here is as these plagues unfold, one after another after another, we're seeing the judgment of God against Egypt. We're seeing God reveal himself to the Egyptians. And step by step, God is freeing his people. There, there's a, a declaration of victory that we need to see. Tim Chester, uh, in his book, Exodus for You, makes this statement. When God goes head to head with the gods and the ideologies of this world, there is only one winner. It may not have looked like that on the day before the plague of blood or on Easter Saturday, but it became very clear the day after the final plague and the day after Easter Sunday. Our God is the true God, the mighty creator, the holy judge, and he is our gracious savior. So if we look at the plagues in total, we see this unfolding of the power of God and the judgment of God and the revelation of God. And what we see ultimately is a clear and decisive victory. There's no question by the time we get even to the end of the ninth plague and darkness overtakes the land, there's no question as to who is the Lord. That final plague of darkness is a judgment against uh, the most powerful of the gods of Egypt, Ra, the sun god. And the sun is blotted out and darkness is all over the land of Egypt, a supernatural darkness all over the land of Egypt. God is clearly and decisively the victor. And so where's the good news? That's the question we began with, right? Where's the good news in the midst of these plagues? Well, certainly there is good news in the end. So just as Chester said, uh, there are times where on Easter Saturday, it doesn't look like God's won, but by the time you get to the end of the story, you see the victory of God. Well, uh, metaphorically, we're living in Easter Saturday. We're living in the in-between, what uh, theologians call the already and the not yet. The kingdom of God has come, but it's not fully here. And we're waiting for the return of Jesus. And uh, we know at that point, we'll have full and complete victory. Jesus will be completely victorious. All that's wrong will be made right and everything will be restored. So is that the good news? Is the good news that we wait and sooner or later we experience the presence of God? I do think that's part of it, but I think the teachings of Jesus would tell us, and certainly the New Testament authors and the early church would tell us, that's not all of it. Jesus, for instance, said to his disciples, I have come to give you life and life to the full. Jesus said that the, the yoke that he has is easy and his burden is light, that there's a a, a kind of life that we're called to live right now that is fully victorious, that is uh, fully engaged in the beauty of God. And so the question is, how does that work? How, how does it work that God doesn't just have ultimate victory that we see in the flow of all 10 of these plagues, but that God has present victory for us? Well, I, I think that takes us back to our passage for today. So I want to go back to that plague of the gnats, and call out a specific aspect that's distinct starting in that third plague. Let me read 
just the end again. This is verse 18. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. So one of the big distinctions that is not on the chart is the first two plagues, Pharaoh's magicians, uh, we looked at last week kind of humorously, could repeat. Uh, They could repeat the prelude uh, plague or sign, uh, the staff becoming a serpent or becoming a dragon. They could repeat the water turning to blood. They could repeat the frogs everywhere. But by the time it gets to the gnats, when all of the dust becomes gnats, they give up. They just say, we, we can't do it. We don't have it in us to do that. And their specific words is, wording to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. This is the power of the Spirit. This is something that's beyond what we're capable of doing. This is over us. This is beyond us. Well, the, the finger of God is actually an idea that we're going to see throughout Scripture The first place it shows up is in Exodus chapter 8, but I want to take you to another famous place it shows up. So would you turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 11. In Luke chapter 11, uh, Jesus is encountering a uh, demon-possessed person. Uh, This demon-possessed man is mute, and when Jesus shows up, he casts the demon out. And um, as he casts the demon out, there's a bit of a, a, a dialogue that ensues. Let me read for you. This is starting in Luke chapter 11, verse 14. Now he, this is Jesus, was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste in a divided household falls. And if Satan is also divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But, now listen very carefully to what he says, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, a couple things that you need to know. Um, The story of the Exodus is the most famous story in Jewish theology. It is told over and over again. It is told throughout the generations. It's the one story that Jesus can know for sure that everybody around knows that story. So that phrase, the finger of God, found in Exodus chapter 8, the first time Pharaoh's magicians couldn't do what God was doing, would be known by everybody. Jesus isn't incidentally using a phrase. He's very clearly uh, referencing back to Exodus chapter 8. But what does he say happens? when the fi- If it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So he begins with this logical argument that um, I, I can't be casting out demons by demons because that would be just breaking down the demon kingdom. Like, it doesn't even make any sense. He uses this logical argument, but then he says, if it's by the finger of God, if it's by the power of God that can't be replicated by humans, then the kingdom of God 
has come upon you. And that phrase, the kingdom of God has come upon you, that's not a, um, yay, the kingdom of God's here. We're so excited to see the kingdom of God. It's actually language um, that's, that's like crept up and kind of like snuck up and caught you. The kingdom of God has shown up and you weren't expecting it. The kingdom of God is here whether you're ready or not. When the finger of God begins to be active, the kingdom of God is following whether you're ready or not. What's Jesus saying? Well, I, I want to do a little bit of theological work uh, with you for a minute. So I'm going to ask you to stick with me. I know we're on video and I know theology is not everybody's favorite, but theology only means what we believe about God. And uh, this is important for us to dive into what we believe about God. So what does Jesus mean when he says the finger of God? Well, there's a couple famous places the finger of God shows up. One of them is later in the book of Exodus. So in Exodus chapter 31, um, the, the people of God have already left Egypt. Uh, they have received the, the Ten Commandments. Moses went back uh, and found the, um, the, the incense, is getting ready to go back to the golden calf. But right before he hears about this idol that has been created, God shows up and writes for him the law. So uh, look at it in uh, verse 18 of uh, Exodus chapter 31. This is right at the very end, right before the golden calf narrative begins. It says this, And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. So the finger of God is writing very specifically the holy law. This is the, the law that the people of God would be held to. If you uh, skip just a, a couple pages forward to Leviticus uh, chapter 19, at the beginning of Leviticus chapter 19, uh, it makes this, uh, God makes this statement. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I the Lord your God am holy. This is the heart of the law. It's found right in the middle of the book of Leviticus because as the law is laid out, what God's saying to the people is, this is the pathway to holiness and you shall be holy just like I am holy. I don't know about you, but I hear that and I just think, well, that doesn't seem fair. I mean, like, the, the, he's God. I, I'm not God. How can I be holy as he is holy? The, the expectation of the law given to Israel was intended to feel like this heavy weight. So the finger of God written on this, uh, these tablets stating the holiness of God, the law of God, was this burden that landed on the people of God. So that's one place we see the finger of God. Um, the, the other place that we see the finger of God is in the book of Daniel. So if you turn uh, forward a little bit, uh, after the, um, the, the Psalms and the Proverbs, after the major prophets, we're going to get into uh, the prophet Daniel. Uh, after the book of Ezekiel, I'm kind of working my way there as well. So we're going to find uh, Daniel chapter 5, famous story of uh, King Belshazzar and uh, an interaction that's happening with him. I, I don't have time to give you the whole narrative, but I want to read for you uh, just verse 5. So this is happening at this feast that Belshazzar has thrown and in verse 5, it says this, Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. 
Now, uh, there's a narrative that unfolds from here, but um, the in the end, the king is trying to figure out what in the world was written there and what God he recognizes as God is trying to say to him. And um, in the end, Daniel is going to be able to interpret it for him. And so that's down at the end of uh, Daniel chapter 5. It says uh, basi- basically three phrases. The first one is this, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Uh, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting, and your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. So uh, w- without the whole story, what I want you to see is the finger of God shows up and uh it's not pleasant. People will say to me all the time, I just wish I would know the will of God that he would just write it on the wall. And I always say to say to them, that only happened once and it did not go well. You probably don't want that happening to you. You don't want the finger of God writing on your wall, believe me. Uh, the, the message is a difficult message, a message of judgment where he, he says um, that, that God has numbered the days of your kingdom. He's brought them to an end. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And so your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. It's a message of judgment. And so we have the finger of God bringing the law of God, the holiness of God. We have the finger of God bringing the judgment of God. And so now Jesus says to first century Israelites who know the stories, who know the law, who know the judgment, who understand the prophets, he says, if The finger of God is what's driving out the demons. The kingdom of God is about to be sprung upon you. Now, the finger of God doesn't represent the law or judgment per se. It represents the kingdom of God kind of sneaking up upon you. So the question is, how in the world is that good news? Like, let's go back to the very beginning. That doesn't seem like good news. That seems like bad news. Well, let's look one more time at Exodus chapter 8. So when we go to Exodus 8, it very specifically says, the magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God, but Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So the very first time a phrase is used, that becomes the driving way that phrase is understood throughout the Bible. And it kind of makes sense to us, right? So the first time that phrase is used, it means God is doing something that man in his own strength is not capable of doing. When God writes the law, he is saying this is something man in his own strength is not capable of doing. When he judges Belshazzar, He is saying, living up to the righteousness of God, being weighed in the scales and not found wanting, that's not something that man is capable of doing. And now Jesus says, when demons are driven out, when miraculous acts that cannot be explained are showing up by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the finger of God, the kingdom of God is upon you. It's something that man is not capable of doing. Um, Turn to the book of Jeremiah. I want you to think about that idea that the finger of God writing on the hearts of the people, uh, or sorry, writing on the, the tablets 
uh, is a, a work that only God can do. And I want you to see in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33, a famous, uh, vitally important passage. In fact, I'm going to start in verse 31 of Jeremiah 31. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, referencing back to the Exodus, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Now verse 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. So this is God saying that the writing that happened on those tablets, it didn't work because the people of God couldn't do it. They broke the covenant. But now in this new covenant, there will be a time coming where the finger of God will be at work again, this time writing the law on our hearts rather than on tablets of stone, changing us from the inside out. What, what um, Jeremiah is telling us through prophecy, what Jesus is telling us when he says the finger of God shows up, is that um, when, when we rely on self, remember we talked about that last week, is kind of that core idol that we come back to again and again. When we rely on self, we work hard, but we always are found wanting. No matter how much we try, no matter how much we seek to live up to the law, we're just not capable of it. And so what God says to Jeremiah is, um, even though I was their husband, they broke my covenant. Even though I did everything on my end, they broke their side of the covenant. And so the finger of God is going to come again. And I'm going to write the law on their hearts. I'm going, to, um, I'm going to change them at their very nature. The place... Uh, the, the, the idea here is that this is something that only God can do. The enduring idols of our time are idols of self. And what God is saying is when the kingdom of God shows up, when the finger of God comes, the, the idols of self start to pass away. So the place where self tends to survive the most is where we think we can do it, where we can grit our teeth and be holy, where we can white knuckle it and we can make it work where um, we, we can we can work harder and harder and harder and try not to fail and the question is is that really good news and the answer to the question is no if it relies on me it is not good news I mean maybe temporarily for a few of us the most disciplined among us maybe we can make it work we can just try harder we can push the sin out we can we can work more but the, the problem is if we succeed we become self-righteous, and if we fail, we're full of shame and guilt. Us trying harder to maintain the law is not good news. But when the finger of God shows up and he begins to write the, the law, excuse me, on our hearts and our minds, he starts to change us from the inside out. Now that is truly good news. Now remember, the finger of God shows up again in the Old Testament, uh, speaking judgment. So I want you to turn to the book of Galatians. Paul, looking back on uh, the work of Jesus and uh, the, the way that Jesus worked among his people, makes uh, an incredible statement. We're going to look at um, Galatians, starting in verse 12, and then we're going to uh, look at just at three verses. Paul says this, But the law is not of faith, 
Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So what Paul's saying to the Galatians is that the judgment of God, just like the law of God, is being handled by the finger of God. When the finger of God shows up, remember the finger of God, when uh, it's something that we can't do for ourselves, we were not capable of making ourselves holy. We were not capable of being our own sacrifice. But Jesus becoming the curse for us transforms us so that we would enter into the life of faith given to us in Christ. Here's what I want you to see. The finger of God, when the finger of God shows up, it's the harbinger of the kingdom. It's the thing that says the kingdom of God is coming. The law is written on my heart. The judgment of God is fulfilled. God is doing what only God can do. The things that we can't replicate. And that means that the kingdom of God is here. And so the question is, what did you do, what did I do to write the law on your heart, on my heart? What did I do to have the desire to follow God? What did I do to ensure that I am not judged for my sin, but rather I'm judged by the righteousness of Christ? And the answer to the question is nothing. You did nothing. There's nothing that you could do. In fact, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, it's by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of yourself. It's a gift of God so that no one can boast. This is given to you freely. It's given to you completely. And it's given to you fully by grace alone. When the finger of God shows up, the finger of God shows up because only God can do it. He's the only one that can do it. So where does this leave us? The, the people of Israel are waiting to move forward, to leave Egypt and move into the promised land. We're going to look at the beginning of that journey next week. The, the people, uh, God's people, are changed. And when Jesus says the kingdom of God, when the, when the finger of God shows up, the kingdom of God is at hand. It means that the rule and the reign of God, the place where God is in charge, is about to expand. It's about to, um, to, uh, to encompass everything. So I just want to take a few minutes to apply that. What's it look like when we begin to move forward into the kingdom of God? Okay, the finger of God means the kingdom of God's coming. And so the question is, what are you and I doing in our lives that require the presence of God, the finger of God? Because what Jesus says is, when God begins to do things that only God can do, you know that the kingdom of God is here. So the question for many of us, I think fairly, is, are you doing anything, am I doing anything that requires the presence of God? That where it, if God doesn't come through, I'm in trouble. Like, I need God to show up. Do we have anything like that in our lives? Well, um, one of the answers to that question is spiritual formation. As we encounter Jesus, that process of being changed 
into the likeness of Christ is something that we're not capable of doing on our own. Now, we've talked about intentional spiritual formation, and we've talked about the idea of uh, proper teaching and being engaged in community and engaging the practices of God. And all of that's great, but the, the bottom line is, it's right in the middle of that diagram, if the Holy Spirit doesn't do work, if the finger of God doesn't come, we're not going to be changed. And so that transformation, that that longing of our heart that begins to change, that's the finger of God. That's the work of God. And so as we uh, ask God to do that change in us, that's change that we know we can't generate on our own. Uh, I want you to see in uh, the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, um, God is, uh, Paul is speaking about the work of God that comes from the finger of God. And I want to just pick up kind of right in the middle in verse 16. Paul says this, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. So he literally says, we see people differently. Uh, Because of Christ, because of the finger of God, we're changed. We start to see people differently. And he says in verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. So that transformation... That's the work of Jesus. That's the finger of God. That's the work that only Jesus can do. So our internal transformation leads to a life that's transformed. What, uh, what Paul's getting at in 2 Corinthians 5 is that when we change on the inside, we begin to change on the outside. So that's the beginnings of spiritual formation. <coughs> Excuse me. But there's an outward transformation that also comes. So if you go just a little bit further in that passage, what Paul says is we're going to begin to live as ambassadors for Christ. When the finger of God shows up, um, not only are we changed on the inside, but it moves, migrates to the outside. So listen uh, as we continue on, starting in verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave to us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So what happens is when the finger of God starts to show up, and we start to submit ourselves to the work of God. He doesn't just change us inside, but that inside transformation moves to the outside, and we begin to look different. We begin to be his ambassadors in the world around us. We begin to be people who are representing God to our neighbors and to our friends and our families, to our workplace and to our, the, the students that are in the hallways with us. We represent God to the people around us. And so, let, let me try to bring this to a head and lovingly challenge you. If you everything in your life you're able to accomplish on your own without the, the power of God, you're missing the finger of God. And when you miss the finger of God, you're missing the kingdom of God. He has to do the work. And so we need to be people who are willing to take risks, who are willing to step out. I'll say it this way. If you can pray, God, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then as you leave that prayer, you believe that you are capable of bringing that kingdom in. You need a better prayer. You've missed the kingdom. The heart of the kingdom of God is the reign, the rule and reign of God that only he can do. And it comes through his power, not our power. 
For so many of us, we've been taught that forgiveness is the core of the scriptures, um, that the deliverance story that we find in the book of Exodus is a story of deliverance from sin and bondage. And please hear me, that is true. It is absolutely true that we are delivered from sin and the bondage to sin. But it's also true that we're delivered to something, that we're delivered from sin into the kingdom of God, not just in eternity, not just that someday we'll be with him and all that's wrong will be made right. That's true, but that's not it. We are actually delivered into the present day kingdom of God, that we would live different lives, that we would be transformed on the inside, that we would be ambassadors for Christ on the outside, that we would be attempting things for him that he puts in our hearts with his passion and his spirit that only he can do, that we would step into for his glory, that we'd be able to look back and say, I have no idea how that happened. But God did that. It's the finger of God, the finger of God bringing us the kingdom of God. So I want to end with a story that I heard this week that I just thought was fascinating. It probably resonated with me because um, like some of you, I grew up uh, United Methodist and it was actually a story about a, a little Methodist church. There was a um, uh, evangelist uh, pastor from a charismatic church, from a charismatic tradition that had come to a small little Methodist church. And uh, he was uh, kind of explaining the, the Holy Spirit to them. And he had been doing that all week at different meetings. And by Saturday, he had come to a men's meeting. And by then there was quite the chatter about what this guy was talking about, whether they bought this stuff or didn't buy this stuff. And so he's in there talking to these guys. They're asking all kinds of questions. And the one older man says at one point, brothers, this pastor is talking about the baptism of the Spirit. And I can tell you, he's telling the truth because that happened to me. And I can tell you, since that happened to me 30 years ago, I can do anything I like. And they looked at him and said, what are you talking about? What do you mean you can do anything you like? He said, I can do anything I like. There's nothing I like that I can't do. I have complete freedom. Since the baptism of the Spirit has come to me, I have complete freedom. And they said, man, I'm just not sure that we believe you. Like, I don't think you get to do anything that you like. Like, that's not the way it works. And he says, nope, I get to do anything that I like. And they said, well, we don't understand. Explain to us what you mean. And he says, well, here's, here's what I mean. 30 years ago, the Holy Spirit came upon me and he didn't just forgive me. He changed my liker. And now I can do anything I like. See, that's the heart of what Jesus is doing by the finger of God. Changing our liker. Another way of saying, writing the law of God on our hearts. Changing our minds and our spirits. Doing this tr the supernatural work of transformation that brings us new life and gives us a message for the world around us. And so as we transition from this series, this part of Exodus where God is bringing deliverance to the second half of the book where God has brought deliverance and he's uh, leading his people out, uh, I want to remind you that the plagues indeed are actually good news. They're a reminder to us that we can't do it ourselves, that the things that we ascribe worship to, worth to, they don't and can't fulfill us. That uh, when we ascribe worship to a false idol, thinking that it will give us what we want, it's only the love and grace of God that judge, judges that action to show us that we cannot get what I want. But even the judgment of God, the law of God written, when it's written on our hearts 
and the judgment of God is absorbed by Jesus, it is indeed good news, and it pushes us back to him. And so we are sent out as ambassadors, as people propelled by the finger of God. So the worship team is going to come and they're going to lead us in a response. And as they lead us in a response, I just want to simply say this to you. Um, We are called to be his ambassadors. And that means that we're going to be stepping into things that we don't think we can do. You're going to hear stories of that in the weeks to come, of ways that God's working among us as his people. Things that we're doing that we can't do on our own, but God can and is doing among us. And he's calling you and I into that. And so I want to invite you to, uh, to step forward, to maybe even to come to an altar and be prayed over, commissioned as an ambassador, to recognize, to come and to repent and to say, God, I've tried to do this in my own strength. I can't do it. I can't white knuckle holiness anymore. I keep messing up. I keep failing. And, and God doesn't look down in judgment. Rather, he says, I know that's why I came to die for your sake. I want to write my law on your heart. And so, friends, I want to invite you into that. Um, It may be that you need to come to a side of the altar where you could just simply be in the presence of God. Maybe it's just time uh, for you and him to be together. Or it may be that you need to come forward to the side of the altar or uh, to the side of the sanctuary where uh, brothers and sisters can come and pray over you and speak those words of, of forgiveness and truth and then commissioning over you. And so would you just take a moment in silence and just... Be quiet in his presence. And I want to pray over you, and then Ashley's going to lead us as we respond. Jesus, this medium video is so weird, um, but even uh, now as I'm speaking these words, I'm picturing my brothers and sisters and uh, the, the way that you have begun this transformation process in us. So God, would you continue that work in us? Would you help us to open our our hands to those areas where we've held on to with our own strength, where we're white-knuckling holiness, where we're uh, just trying to make it work. And instead, would you remind us that in grace, you are coming to give us your spirit that is doing this work in us, that you are rewriting the law on our heart, you're changing our likers, that uh, you've absorbed judgment on our behalf, so we don't have to live judged but rather victorious because of you. And so Jesus, help us to step into that reality. I pray for any that are here who just, they need to be reminded that you're at work. God, would you meet them this morning? Remind them that you're at work. You're doing this work. And so do it in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.